This episode is sponsored by Reedy River Baptist Church. Reedy River Baptist Church is located at 871 North Highway 25 Bypass in Greenville, South Carolina. Reedy River is kingdom-focused as the church seeks to nurture and grow the people who attend their services. Reedy River is a biblical-based congregation that worships God and seeks to love Him with all of their heart and is constantly searching ways to take that love to the world. Come worship at Reedy River on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. Now on to the episode. Well, welcome back to That's a Good Word, a podcast designed to assist and equip Christians through advice from people in ministry. If you're blessed by our content, we'd appreciate if you liked and subscribed to our YouTube channel, and feel free to follow us on any of our social media accounts as well. We are honored today to have on Dr. Gene Fant, the president of North Greenville University. Um, we are very excited that you were here today. Thank you for being gracious to give us your time. Uh, my pleasure to be here. Love to run my mouth. Right. So there you go. <laughs> well, as always, you give an opportunity to share your story. How did you come to know the Lord? And then give us your testimony of how God's worked in your life. Yeah, sure. So grew up in a Christian home, as you would expect. Uh, testimonies often start with and all, but uh, my dad was a church planner up in Buffalo, New York. We moved from Mississippi to a little town called Fredonia. Mm-hmm. He started nine churches in seven years, something along those wow. lines. Uh, so we actually ended up in a house church. And uh, I'll tell you how I asked Jesus into my heart in a moment. Uh, but when I made my public profession of faith, I came off the stairs down the living room. Uh, and we ended up uh, later with a baptistry in the garage, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, when I got baptized, we went actually to Orchard Park, New York. There was a, a church there. Uh, that had a baptistry, but actually I believe it was churches in South Carolina that chipped in to buy our church plant a baptistry. And so later uh, we ended up with a baptistry in the garage and uh, it was a lot of fun. You raise the garage door, people would like come out of the living room sanctuary (laughs) that we had uh, and then dad would baptize people. Uh, It was in that house church that I had the experience of asking Christ into my heart and to be Lord of my life. I was very young, but uh, had dropped uh, some language And uh, dad had heard me uh, speaking the way that I was speaking, uh, which I knew was uh, against our family uh, rules and all that. And so dad confronted me over it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we went upstairs in that same house in the parsonage uh, that was serving as the house church temporarily. Uh, We went upstairs and dad took me into the bathroom. And uh, the way that it worked was you would get your mouth washed out with soap. And so the way that dad had us do it is he would pull a bar of soap out. We'd, we'd soap up our toothbrush and then we'd have to brush our teeth with it. And that would wash the uh, filth out of our mouth, so to speak. But on this particular time, because it had happened before, uh, on this particular time, uh, dad uh, grabbed his toothbrush Mm -hmm. and soaped his toothbrush and he started to brush his teeth. And he said, I want you to understand this is what Christ did for you. I'm taking the punishment Mm -hmm. for your sin. Um, for, for what you have done in the same way that Christ took that punishment for you. And uh, he said, I, I want for you to think about what that means, sent me back to my room. And then he came back in and I was very moved. Um, even though I was very young, I still remember it just very, very clearly. Uh, he waited a couple of years. He didn't really push me to get baptized then because he wanted to make sure that I wasn't just responding uh, to the moment. Um, but they saw fruit, I, I think, even at a very young age like that. And so a uh, good Friday service, my brother and I both actually went forward for baptism at the same service. Wow. And then uh, about a month later, maybe they uh, took us up to that church. We got baptized and uh, that's been amazing. I come from a family of pastors. We've actually had Fant Baptist preachers in South Carolina for 200 years. Uh, Ephraim wow. Fant was the first that we're aware of. He's buried up in, I believe, Union County. I've been to his grave <laughs> since I moved to South Carolina. Uh, but my granddad was a Baptist preacher. My uncle was a Baptist preacher. My dad was a Baptist preacher. Uh, I have a cousin who pastors in Mississippi. Actually, it's a cousin's son. So that's the fourth generation. Uh, and then my son is also uh, helps with a church down in Florida. Right. Uh, some of your listeners may be aware of Jimmy Scroggins, who's big in the church planning area. My son was an intern with Jimmy uh, for several years and now uh, helps out at First Baptist Hypolux. So doing worship leadership, does some preaching. Uh, my daughter, Emily, they're twins. Uh, she's very involved at Biltmore Baptist here in Asheville, uh, just up the road, and just been really blessed to have those uh, opportunities to uh, grow up in a ministry context uh, where we did church planning and local-based church work. And, um, you know, that, that kind of got me into 
uh, the path that would lead me to seminary, but my path also had a lot of twists and turns along right. the way. Right. So when when you go into it, I mean, did, did you have university president in mind? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we we're trying to keep me out of jail for most of my life. I think it was uh, the, the joke that I usually made. It wasn't that bad. Uh, but I always knew I wanted to be a college professor. Right. Uh, and we, we really... Uh, the best that we can tell, we even have a little book when I was in second or third grade, what I want to be when I grow up. And I said, in it, I want to be a college professor and teach paleontology. I'm going to go to the University of Mississippi and get a PhD. I had little pictures of dinosaurs in it and everything. My memory is it has an orange cover. I think my mom has it. Uh, hi, mom, if you're watching, because <laughs> she probably is. Um, and and uh, the best we can tell is my best friend's dad was a college professor. He was a math okay. professor at the local college. And... I knew that, that he had summers off, and that sounded really good to me. <laughs> and so uh, all the way through junior high, high school, I assumed I was going to be a college professor. Uh, even uh, my high school newspaper, they did an interview with me about my plans to become a college professor, which is really embarrassing now to go back and read. <laughs> I have a wonderful puka shell necklace and fabulous hair right. uh, at that time. So I went to James Madison University in Virginia, uh, thought I was going to do anthropology, archaeology, uh, paleontology, something along those lines, um, and had a, had a wonderful academic experience there uh, in my in my. Um, personal life, I was very involved with uh, what they would call now the Baptist Collegiate Ministries. Uh, I was on the traveling praise team, kind of like Joyful Sound at, right. at uh, North Greenville. Uh, went all over to churches singing, playing guitar with the group and things like that. W was very involved, um, but uh, was being taught from a very secular uh, point of view. Uh, was being prepared, I thought, for graduate school along those lines and all. Uh, but senior year, really, God, I felt like, was beginning to move in my heart and change my direction a little bit. Uh, and so um, it wasn't that I was reacting against the secular nature of what was going on in my, in my preparation. I was pretty, pretty well grounded in terms of biblical worldview and, and things like that. Um, but God really was, I felt like the Spirit was really intervening in my heart and making me rethink um, some things really wrestled with a call to missions. Um, when my wife and I were, we'd been married maybe two or three years, we really wrestled with a call to missions. And coming out of that wrestling began to feel like uh, God was going to send us to colleges that were houses for missions. Right. And so even this week at North Greenville, one of the first things we do of the year is the Global Impact Conference where we have missions and sending agencies come in uh, to, to, so students can hear the, God's heart for the nations. And uh, so even this week is, is such a heart reminder for me of all the way back then when Lisa and I were praying through a call to missions and we felt like God was going to lead us to places that would be sending universities mm. to be at North Greenville, which is very much that. Right. And even this week to be listening uh, to our speaker and, and hearing students sing in so many different languages and to watch the parade of flags that we do. Right. It, it's really amazing to watch how God unfolded that in my heart all the way back in about 1983, so 40 years ago now, and, and to see how God guided my paths and, mm. and brought me and Lisa together as husband and wife even and combined merged our callings toward that. Uh, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. So, yeah, professor, yeah. Uh, president, that was, <laughs> no, 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 that, that was very much uh, later on, and um, I, I can talk about that if, if you want, but, um, you know, that, that was very much not on the radar. Uh, I knew I'd be an academic, but what that looked like, I had no idea the paths, the twists and turns that uh, God was going to put us into. Right. One thing that, I, that I, many pastors or professors have told me, especially that have been in, in the ministry for a long time or have been Christians for a long time, as they all say, one of the best things you can do as a young Christian, as a Christian, is look back. You yeah. know, especially oh, when you've yeah. been going through those years, you can see how God has worked, and even in times where you're wondering, is God working in this moment right now where I'm struggling? You can look back and say, Hey, yeah. God was working in all those situations. And I imagine as you became the um, president of North Greenville, you saw God working there as well. I mean, what what kind of drew you to North Greenville? Yeah. So you know, there's a, there's an old joke about if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, right? <laughs> right. And and I think in my Younger years, I would often talk about God having a sense of humor. As I get older, I really understand providence in a very different way. Mm 
Um, and, and that's one of the things that's just incredibly humbling. And so I can think about those prayers that I was wrestling through in the fall of 1983, mm. that now in the fall of 2023, I could never at that age have sat there and charted a path to this. But God superintending this from his position, transcending time and history and, and even persona, uh, God was able to do that and to steer me, nudge me, intersect me with people and all. And, and so it is in the moment. I remember being in my 20s and just often being in the moment and feeling frustrated. Why didn't I get this job? Why didn't I get this? Maybe even girl. Why didn't I? You know, you can go through all the why didn't I's. Um, and in your 20s, they, they just don't make sense. But then you get, I think probably about the age of 55 or so is when all of a sudden the pieces start dropping in and all of a sudden you begin to really see this incredible loving God that we have who guides, directs, intersects us, gifts us, uh, even in different ways in different seasons in our lives. And then all of a sudden you get to a stage where you can look back and, and it's incredible humbling because, and, and I think this is a really important point. It, it's super humbling because it also makes you keenly aware that you are not smart enough. And in academia, that's a big statement. You are not smart enough to figure this out. Mm. But for God, it's, it's, it's a mirror, you know, boom, and, and there you go. Right. And, and to realize God's love, God's care, God's providence, um, God's personal interaction, even with you. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's a really, really humbling thing. And so I watch in academia, which is a field that is filled with pride and hubris and especially university presidents who often tend to be filled with pride and hubris because they've reached that apex right. of a field that is filled with that. There, there really is a, a huge uh, temptation and all, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm not guilty, certainly at times, but in the most difficult parts of the days, and there are a lot of difficult days in a job like this, when you realize the incredible humility that comes from realizing that it's not about you, it's about God, it's about something much larger than you, um, God teaches us best when we realize that we can't do it. Mm -hmm. When we think we can do it, you know, I think he gives us a big, long leash. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we get to certain stages where we're like, I can't do this. And those are the times when you realize, but God can. Mm. And um, to, to see that manifest itself now over the really four decades of my career and my personal life and all, I mean, it's really it's really humbling and really amazing. And, and you're reminded just how much God loves us and how much God loves his mission for the world, That's right. you know? Right. Uh, so there you go. Right. Right. Well, as a student at North Greenville, I can attest to the fact that Christ does in fact make the difference at the mm -hmm. university. Um, and really right now is acting as a light in darkness. Um, we live in a culture that seems to be caving in around mm -hmm. us and, um, even in higher education, it seems that there's a lot of secular higher education out there, and North Greenville stands as really a light on the hill. Mm -hmm. um, when when you think about the importance of Christian higher education, how how vital is North Greenville to the community and, and to the kingdom? Yeah, well, in institutions like North Greenville, because there there are a fair number of, of faith, not as many as there used to be, but there are a fair number of, of faithful institutions. The difference really starts with we already believe in the truth. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about this in higher ed, we're t we talk all about the, the quest for truth. You know, it's, it's where, you know, what is, so you go to Harvard and Veritas is written all over everything, Latin for truth. Um, but what you're taught in most higher ed systems is that what makes life worth living is the pursuit of truth, not truth. Mm. And so I will watch people in, especially in academia, I will watch people follow truth, follow truth, follow truth, biblical truth, objective truth. They'll follow it, follow it, follow it. But when they get to the point at which they're supposed to claim it and allow truth with a capital T to become Lord over their lives, they, they back off because mm -hmm. they love 
the pursuit. The pursuit. Mm. And, and so you get the scripture even talks about this, about always pursuing the truth, but never arriving at the truth, always pursuing things, but never having the satisfaction of it. And in this world, um, I, I think that we culturally in the West, we, we see people do this. It's not the destination, it's the journey. No, that's not true. Hmm. It is the destination. It is truth. So the pursuit of truth means nothing. It's a waste of time. If when you finally are confronted with who truth is, incarnationally as well as objectively, if you reach that and you cannot embrace that or you refuse to embrace it despite the evidences you see, then you're, you're left constantly wandering and ultimately you end up rootless and uh, aimless as well. And so you get a place like North Greenville where we begin with the truth and what we want to help students to wrestle with is not easy ideas. What we want for them to wrestle with is an understanding that here is a, here's a community of faculty, staff, coaches, you name it, that all of us are people who have wrestled with this truth. We've submitted to this truth. Right. We've made this truth Lord over our lives. But when we're interacting with students, it's not just, here's truth, repeat this. Hmm. It is, here's how you get there. Because... Uh, what we find in the educational process a lot is that you tear things down and you build things up. A lot of academia is about tearing things down and acting as if it doesn't matter what's built up in its place. That's just not true. If, if you have things that are emptied out and you don't fill them with good things, they will not be filled with good things. Right. And so places like North Greenville, where we really do take this seriously, are incredibly important, especially to the church. Uh, because what I have seen, I've studied this a lot in my career, what I've seen is that churches and denominations that, quote unquote, cut their colleges and universities loose uh, for, for whatever, sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's cultural, sometimes it's theological or whatever. But those denominations always end up faltering and moving away from biblical truth. Hmm. And there is a symbiotic relationship I would say between Christian education, whether it's K through 12 or collegiate and university, homeschool, we could throw that in there, Christian teachers that are in even public settings and so forth. Um, but in a place like North Greenville that is denominationally related, the future of the South Carolina Baptist Convention walks through the doors of all of our classrooms every day. And That's it's right. not just Christian stuff. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I tell pastors frequently what we're trying to do. Yes, we try to raise as much money as we can for Christian studies students to have scholarships so they can graduate as close to debt free as possible. But I want to help that accounting major to be able to do that as mm -hmm. well, because that accounting major is going to sit under the tutelage of leaders like John Duncan, the dean of the College of Business and Entrepreneurship, who is a churchman of churchmen who believes in marketplace ministry. And uh, I just know most pastors will heartily agree with this statement. Give me a business leader, a businesswoman, a businessman. Give me a business leader with a heart for Jesus, who has a talent for raising, for making resources right. and a talent for serving the local church. And they're on the personnel committee. They're on the finance committee. They're tithing. They're, they're giving over and above that, but also have the ability to uh, advise the pastor and yes. the ministry team. Uh, give me that all day long. You want to do a church plant? Let's find a church planner, but let's also find a team of 10 people who are not Christian studies majors. But let me find two, two uh, school teachers, a business person with a degree in finance, and, and a couple of other people. Send them up as a part of that launch team. Right. It's a completely different model. When my dad was a church planner in New York, uh, it was people from South Carolina that went up there and called us. The Nortons were the, the first family uh, that, that went up there and, and looked back. But um, you know, they, they called dad, they called us as plants. We had uh, advice from the Southern Baptist Convention and stuff like that. But the model that we had back then was one that was incredibly time intensive. And for the church planners, it was very lonely. The model that we're using now where we have sending churches that will send a launch team to go out, far superior model, just in terms of sustainability and, and so forth. And uh, we, we often... Uh, do, I think, kids a disservice when we talk about things like calling. People are called to ministry and mission and so forth, but people are also called to be business leaders and teachers and lawyers and moms right. and you, you name it. That is also a, a part of the calling that God puts out in front of us. And a healthy church is going to be filled with healthy church members 
And we like to believe that we are producing and equipping healthy. So we talk about transformational leaders for church and society. Uh, I could also translate that as healthy church members and healthy community members who are motivated by that, that sense that they really want to serve God in tangible ways. Mm -hmm. And so a place like North Greenville that produces students, equips students that are going to do a lot of those kinds of um, diff different uh, vocational callings, uh, employment callings out there, but uh, not just on Sundays, but through the week are going to be there to serve the church. That is incredibly important. And, and I Sometimes I, I hear people uh, who are in, in church leadership, especially some pastors, they'll say, we know you guys, you know, aren't, aren't interested in whatever. I'm like, no, no, I, the church is, I mean, Christ didn't just die for us and for our sins. Scripture tells us Christ died for his bride, for That's the right. church. Right. And so uh, as a university, if we are there tasked by the bride to serve the bride and through this mystery to put people into the bride uh, as working adults and so forth. Um, that's, that's a pretty amazing uh, opportunity that we have. And sometimes people will think that those are mutually exclusive things, uh, biblical orthodoxy, academic excellence, and so mm. forth. But then the reality is that they are not. That's a false construct that's been promulgated by people that are hostile to Christianity now for 150 or 200 years. And, you know, the reality is I, I have seen this time and time again that as institutions have been serious about academics, they also will find themselves becoming more respectable as institutions, even in terms of people that don't really necessarily understand right. uh, the walk that's there. And, and when I say being really serious about academics, I'm talking about academics top to bottom, not just in Christian studies. That's right. Because what happens with a lot of places, is they'll put that emphasis on Christian studies. We call it a two-sphere uh, education. Mm -hmm. You emphasize mm -hmm. Christian studies, maybe chapel, maybe some campus ministry, stuff like that. But then you have this entire subset of the university that's not connected with that. If you have everything all merged and melted together, then what that means is that you are exalting Christ as Lord over heart, mind, soul, strength. We're, we're living out the scriptures in that way. And then you find that um, really developing, I, I'll even call it a form of intellectual coherence that you just don't find at other places. When we hire faculty members who've been teaching in secular settings, the number one con comment that I get from them after a year is, I can finally be the Christian that I've always wanted to be. I can talk about the things, I, I'm not looking over my shoulder, I'm not whatever. And um, to know that in their offices, when a student is struggling, whether it's a personal thing or a spiritual thing, for a faculty member or a staff member or a coach on the sidelines to know that when those kinds of questions are coming up, that they have the freedom to be able to testify, to use an old term, right. uh, to that student what's going on. That's incredible. Uh, I'll, I'll even throw this in. We have a large uh, athletic program at North Greenville. Uh, so we have, I think this year, about 560 student athletes. And uh, I interview all of our coaches, all of our assistant coaches, you name it. And it's one of the things I tell, especially the assistant coaches, who tend to be about 25, maybe 26. They're like older brother, older right. sister status. I, I tell them this is one of the most incredible things about your job is you are paid to sit on the sidelines or on the bench with a student after after a bad practice and say, okay, what's really going on? I know you just had a bad practice, but what's really going on? Mm -hmm. And to hear that about a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a struggle or something going on at home, to be able to speak into that in, in such an intentional way and even pray with a student like that, that that's, that's a pretty crazy opportunity right, right there. Right. And that student will never understand what it means to be surrounded in a community like that. And uh, so that's why places like ours are so uh, incredibly important, I think, is because we do support and partner with the church, but we're also trying to train. I mean, that kid who goes through an experience like that with an assistant coach will be much more likely in coaching youth sports five or 10 years later when they've got kids that's right. to, to, to reflect what has been modeled for them. Right. Um, we see this with teachers all the time. Uh, most of our teacher education students are teaching in secular settings where you know, they, they are, are doing things in a setting where they cannot be over and things like that. Um, but you can still pray over your class. You, right. know, you can pray over your role. You can pray over the room when it's empty. Uh, you may not be able to do that in a public setting for a variety of reasons and so forth. Um, but 
that relationship building that often will come out that you've seen modeled uh, in your classroom, that is something that's pretty uh, awesome. And we do that in all of our disciplines. Right. Think about all of what, you know, all the different academic programs. I mean, you think about Christian humanism back yeah. in the day, Erasmus made a good point. I mean, th that really it's, it's, there's, there's a way to look at God vertically, but also horizontally. Mm -hmm. When you look at all the disciplines in North Granville, there's ways to say, hey, I can look at science and I can see God in science. I can see that God created order here. I can yeah. look at mathematics. There's, there's, there's to defend of truths and defend of, defend of wrongs. Um, so when you look at all of the disciplines and you, and you have all those disciplines coming from a Christian worldview, it really goes back to right belief leads to right, right behavior. And that's in no matter what discipline you are, not just Christian studies, but yeah. Christian studies included. Well, and, and a phrase that I sometimes will use is studying devotionally. That's not original to me. Uh, that same year that I was wrestling, uh, that senior year, I was wrestling with what I was going to do next. I, I went to a Bible study and somebody used that phrase. And uh, he challenged us as students to study devotionally. And what he said is every day as you start your day or every class as you start class, pray for two things, that God would help you uh, to learn the things that you needed to do for that class, but also to learn the things that he knows that you will need down the road. Hmm. And I really didn't get serious. I mean, I, I was serious about uh, things theologically, but I'll give you an example. Um, my, my philosophy of science and my understanding about theology, I did not merge them well until I started doing that with class. And I took a cadaver anatomy class. So we actually had dead bodies and we were having to go through and do things with them. Right. And I still remember I was praying that prayer, God, help me to understand you better and to learn the things that I need for today. Help me to learn the things that I'll need one day. And I remember we were studying the wrist and I, I won't get too graphic because they were uh, corpses. But I remember we were studying the wrist and the professor was just talking about this incredible thing that happens with our wrist that we can ronate and we can pronate and we can supinate and we can do all these different things. And we were looking at the 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 way that all of the different tendons and the vessels and, and things like that all work together. And I, in a moment there, had a realization that there was no way that all of this was random chance. Hmm. Oh, and then I can cut off the end of my finger and the skin will grow back over it and I won't die. Um, I mean, I, I just became so convinced by that. And that was specifically, I believe, an outgrowth of that, that I began to have the mind of Christ, not just on my heart, on my sin, on the gospel, on the mission, but to have the mind of Christ and how I viewed my discipline at that time, biology and, and later on English. It, it, it's a pretty amazing, in fact, I, I think it's one of the things, you look back on what happened from the Renaissance through the Enlightenment, when people were working off of a basic biblical understanding of the world, the farther we've gotten away from that, yes, we've advanced in technology, but have we advanced as a culture? I give mm. you the Holocaust. Yeah. I give you the <laughs> Holodomor. I give you all of the things that came out of uh, social Darwinism and things like that. Yes, we've advanced technology, but have we really advanced? And, and I can't help but wonder if we went back, as we do at North Greenville, to teaching students to think with the mind of Christ, if that would not lead to many incredible discoveries and, and so forth that would allow us to be able to impact the world even in these so-called secular areas. Just a, a little random thing there for you. So Right. There was a time when divine revelation was seen as a source oh. of truth, and now yeah. it seems to be that reason yeah. has ta overtaken yeah. that. Well, let me throw you an example. Booker T. Washington, the guy with the peanut and peanut butter and all that other good stuff, that or George Washington Carver, I mean, right. sorry. Um, Carver actually wrote about that, that he went to this peanut and asked God to show him why the peanut was on the face of the earth. And he began to discover all these incredible uses for the peanut. He writes a column about it. Hmm. Uh, and the New York Times actually castigates him and says, educated people don't talk like that when he was speaking openly about God's design for the peanut. And I mean, you think about peanut butter is a protein source for incredibly impoverished people that is shelf stable and can be sent in and is cheap to transport. And they, what an incredible gift God gave us when there was this little nitrogen producing thing that's in the soil. Right. And we had this guy who prayed that God would reveal this sort of thing to him. He does it. And then when he explains, this is where the idea came from. We've got these people that are on the side taking pot shots and going, well, people shouldn't talk like that. I mean, 
come on, be be real. Right. And Carver was an amazing believer. You can read this in his journals and and some of his other things just about that methodology that he used that he believed God would give us the insight. That God's revelation is not just for scripture, it's also for other things. And God gives us, I, I've heard inventor after inventor talk about that, that in their sleep they'd wake up and go, and and it's not revelation with a big R, it's revelation with a little R, but I think God gives us that. Sure, Kathy talked about that all the time. Um, that God gave him this revelation of how to fry a chicken sandwich and put pickles on it on a buttered bun, and it transforms orphanages around the world. It transforms uh, student education around the world. It transforms communities all over the place. And he would talk about it. It all started with this crazy thing, you know. And and there story after story after story after story. And again, I believe that's all a part of the way that God uses providence. Uh, to weave these things together for his ultimate mission and glory. Right. Oftentimes we can get this tendency to disconnect the Holy Spirit from imagination, mm-hmm. right? Oh, we, yeah. we can only yeah. connect the Holy Spirit to illumination when we're reading yeah. the Bible. But that, that doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, you can see all throughout Christian history where there's been imagination has just really changed mm-hmm. nations and changed and done great things for the kingdom of God. Well, an imagination is, is an incredibly effective uh, portal to the heart. Mm-hmm. And and so you don't get re- you don't have abolition in the United States abolition of slavery without Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, it's Harriet Beecher Stowe's work that is specifically coming out of a Christian worldview um, that creates a narrative and an imagination that allows then for people's hearts to suddenly become moved and to begin to see this from a different perspective. And so you know it's a great way to put it, illumination and revelation. Um, that those are things that work together. And I I do think sometimes. In a materialistic Western post-Enlightenment world, mm. um, even in uh, theology, we sometimes get a little uncomfortable with talks about the supernatural work of the right. Spirit. But, you know, that sort of is a biblical concept, and, and the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that means something as well, that, that it's something... Uh, the the concept of the spirit is something that I think we want to put in a box. And if there's any person of the Trinity that does not go in a box, it is the spirit right. uh, that is so transcendent and so forth. But anyways. Right. I mean, ultimately, the, the, the most important thing is that, yes, in North Greenville, there people are believing the right things and you start with the truth. Um, and it's not all based on this pursuit of truth and, and, and reason. I, I believe it was my been Martin Luther King that said the most dangerous man is the man with reason and no morals. And no morals. Um, how important also is is just having that moral framework, but not just staying there, having that and then giving the mission to each student to go out and actually use that in the real world, whatever their vaca- their vocation is. Yeah, and and there's actually some intellectual history that goes with that. And so in the 1980s, 1990s, we start to have the rise of a form of reformed theology that helped us in great ways to rediscover the life of the Christian mind. Mm-hmm. And so you have a lot of thinkers that are that are coming out of that. But I saw firsthand because I was coinciding coinciding my education my education and my intellectual development with that. I saw coinciding with that sometimes a diminishing of the importance of pietism and personal formation and yeah. moral formation. Yeah. To where you it was almost like, well if you believe the right things then you're you're good to go. And there are other people who will say, if you do the right things, you're good to go. But the scripture is very clear. These are both things that come together. We, we are not merely thinkers. We are not merely doers. We must have the formation of the whole man and the whole woman. Uh, and so as we are developing our minds, we must be likewise developing our hearts, developing our hands in service uh, and, and so forth. And it's, it's yes, it's moral formation, uh, if you're going to believe in truth incarnate, in truth objective, that means there are also moral truths that come out of that and that must be passed down from generation to generation. Um, I often will say this, especially to prospective students. I'm not the first person to say this, but that they've been taught a lie, which is they can be anything they want to be when they grow up. And that's mm-hmm. a lie. That is not scriptural. In fact, it's the opposite of scriptural. And related to that is you can do anything you want to do as long as you're being authentic to yourself, true to yourself. That is not true. I mean, the whole thing that we're supposed to be is not who we want to be. It's to discover, and that's what we talk about. How do, you, how do we help students discover who God has created them to be, discern the gifts and calling that they've given them, and then figure out where it is they're going to live that out? It's the same thing with moral formation, that yes, we can talk about why things are the way that they are, 
and why we should do things. We don't do things be, in order to be saved. We do things as an outgrowth of God's sanctification within us and so forth. And so that intellectual formation and that sanctification both work together. Right. And by the way, the danger of intellectual formation without sanctification is arrogance, which we've already talked about mm -hmm. and so forth. And you start to think, well, I'm smarter than that. And the next question after I'm... I, first you'll say, well, I'm smarter than that. The next thing that comes after that is, well, did God really say? Hmm. And so once you start thinking you're smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter, then you'll begin to look at life, and that's the question that comes in. And as we may remember, that was a question that came into human history really, really <laughs> early. And the results of asking, did God really say, really brought a lot of pain and ruin and mm -hmm. literal damnation. And so... Um, being in a context where we can ask questions, we can wrestle with things, all that. But in the context of moral formation is really important. I'll add one more thing before I, I, I let you get to your next question. And that is, I've heard many pastors say this, that when students in college come to them with theological questions, the pastor will not answer that question until the pastor has asked this question. When did you start sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend? When did you start going to parties? And talk to me about that first, because what often will happen is students will do moral compromise mm. and then they'll do theological compromise. It's not the reverse. What I see on college campuses is that, that many campuses are designed to create moral compromise knowing, and they may not realize that's why they're doing it, but knowing that that theological compromise will will come along behind it. And so that's why at North Greenville, we combine student life, right. residence life, campus ministries, so that we have all those things working together to try to partner with students Definitely. for their moral formation, as well as their theological formation, so that then as they're adding their intellectual formation along with that, that it's all seamless and it's working together. Because I see at many colleges, student life tries to undermine faculty, mm. residence life tries to undermine campus ministries, and it's a very easy way for students to fall into a thing where they don't even know where to turn. Um, but that's why we start... We start the year with a, a revival, the Ignite Conference. We want all students to hear the gospel. Two weeks later, we do the, the Global Impact Conference for missions. So we want for all of them to understand God's heart for the nations. In the spring, we do another emphasis, which is biblical worldview. And we have speakers come in and, and talk about that kind of moral formation. Uh, chapel for us is our largest classroom. Uh, yes. and, and, yeah. and so sometimes people will say chapel is a church. And that's the first thing I tell students at the very first chapel at convocation. This is not church. I'm not your pastor. You need to find a church on Sundays to plug into and to serve. If you think this is serving that function, you're mistaken. Uh, this is a classroom. and We're going to bring different speakers in who can speak different things to you. But we want for you to understand, even though we have praise and worship, and uh, sometimes we'll have pastors who'll come in and so forth. This is really a classroom. Uh, that's the largest class we teach as a university, and we try to do it through a lens of spiritual formation. Right. Um, one of the books you wrote was a liberal arts mm -hmm. student's guide. Yep. Very important. Um, talking about not just, not just Christian education, but liberal arts mm -hmm. education. Uh, the first thing I think the students kind of go into is they go to a Christian university, and then they actually start looking at non-Christian sources. Mm -hmm. um, when we get into that, it's looking at non-Christian um type of literature and then Christian literature, how should we connect those? I mean, there, there's biblical precedent, right? Daniel and Moses know, yeah, absolutely. know, the, know the culture that they're in, and they know the texts of the culture that they're in, they know the morals. Mm -hmm. How do we kind of engage with those kind of texts, and, but also still having that Christian worldview as our base? Yeah, and so here, here's what I, what I love to help students understand. All truth is God's truth, but all things that we call truth are not God's truth. Mm-hmm. And so we can find glimmers of God's truth. So Augustine talks about this. He talks about the gold of the Egyptians, that when the Israelites leave Egypt, they loot the households, they bring the gold and the silver, and the gold and silver of Egypt is what ends up being melted to make the furnishings for the temple, the, the utensils and all for the, uh, for the tabernacle. 
uh, as they go through. And so Augustine says this is a parable for us. As we find pagan things, we can look at truth in them. If a pagan text tells us the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, just because it's in a pagan text does not mean that that's false. Right. That's God's truth. That's objective truth. All, all of us can see that regardless of time, uh, place, culture, language, uh, you name all of that. Um, but you do have to have your radar on because the, 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 the challenge that we get more times than not is not falsehood, it's half-truth. Hmm. Uh, if I say that the moon is 300 miles away, it's green and it's made of cheese, everybody hears that and they're like, well, that's just stupid. That's because that's just, that's crazy, you know? Right. If I say something else that is mostly true, but has that elements of falsehood. That's what the Bereans did in the New Testament, right? They would constantly compare what they heard against the scriptures to discern whether it was true or not. And, and so, um, you know, as I went through, in, in my case, you know, doing a PhD in literature and a lot of other things along the way, you know, that, that was something that I would constantly think about is, okay, so what is in this that is true, that I can learn from, that is useful and so forth. And there would be things that I would, you know, that I very obviously is stupid, you know, and, and you can put that away. But there, there's, uh, the scriptures are filled. I mean, Paul is very familiar. I mean, I, I was thinking about that passage the other day. We were reading it at church uh, where, where Paul's called in and uh, they're getting ready to flog him. And he starts talking in Greek and the guy says, aren't you Egyptian? And he's like, no, I'm a Roman citizen. At which point the guy's like, ah, and then immediately the guy has uh, Paul speak to the Jews that are there, to the, the, the leaders that are there. And Paul begins to speak in Hebrew there in Aramaic. And I was just thinking about that passage, but here's this guy who is a citizen of the world. He knows Greek mythology because there are references to it. He knows Roman mythology, there are references to it. He understands his Hebrew theology and training, right. and he then is placed by God to be in a position to do that. In fact, that goes back to what we've talked about, which is God's providence and planning. Right. And, and let me extend that even. I tell students this all the time. You never know what thing you learn in a class that you randomly remember 30 years from now will be the answer to somebody's question that they ask you 30, or maybe that your own child will ask you 30 years from now. Yeah, wow. and and so you're sitting in a class with Donnie Mathis or whoever, and he he referenced Donnie. So that's why I referenced Donnie. <laughs> As you're sitting in a class with Donnie, there there's some random thing that comes in, or you're reading a William Faulkner novel with Cheryl Collier, and there's some comment that she makes. When 20 years from now you're doing something and randomly that thing comes in, and God's Spirit pulls that thing out of your brain, right. and all of a sudden you've got that nugget of truth that's there that may or may not have been found in a Christian source text, but is truth that God redeems out of the dross, mm. just as they did the gold of the Egyptians. And in that moment is buffed and polished into that sparkling thing. And it is the right word at the right time in the right way that suddenly allows somebody to find peace in a moment or answers in a moment. And there's no way to describe that except for that's God's superintending providence. Right. <laughs> it's just amazing. God, God's pretty smart. I don't know if you know that or not. But, uh, and, 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 that's right. and I'm constantly yeah. dazzled by that thought. That's right. So. Right. Another thing, the, another point the, the book makes is that there is not, we sometimes we have this, this tendency to disconnect general revelation mm -hmm. and special revelation yeah. and yeah. Just, just widen them apart as far as we can because we want to make sure that we're always holding special revelation in its highest order and then we don't want to put general, general revelation too high. Um, but in Christian education and liberal arts education, that's quite the difference because you're going into classes in liberal arts that are general education classes. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily all Christian studies classes, but there are, they are very important for establishing a worldview. Mm -hmm. um, why is it important that we take general revelation, special revelation, and try to connect them in, in certain ways? Well, because both of them constantly point toward Christ. Right. And, and that's the thing that I think sometimes when we pull those things apart, it's a little bit like the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of times we want to act like the Old Testament's this thing that's over here when the reality is, is that Christian revelation understands God's revelation of himself to not just be from Christ forward, mm. but that it's pre-Christ as well, all the way back to the opening of Genesis, right? right? I mean, we have the Proto-Evangelion where we've got an image of what we then later understand to be Christ. We've got all these theophanies where all of a sudden there's this 
supernatural figure that's there and they don't even know exactly what to call but now in hindsight with that we we begin to see that and so uh, i i would say we do that even with all of the other subject matter i, I think in my uh, my book god as author i talk about um the gospel of homeostasis so mm-hmm. i drink water I, I drink as much water as i can i'm not thirsty well if i wait long enough I'm going to become thirsty again, and I'm going to begin to crave that water. And so homeostasis says that we have a balance in our body of of water or food or or, uh, vitamins, electrolytes, whatever it is, but I'll use water as a thing. Homeostasis teaches us that there is a balance to our bodies of water and that that balance will drop out of balance and will create in us a desire for that restoration of balance. But we know that no matter how long we drink the water, ultimately, if we stop, at some point, we're going to have to drink more water. That's actually an image of Christ in the gospel, because we know that anything in this world will ultimately never satisfy. It can satisfy for a moment in a certain way, but it cannot satisfy uh, for a long period of time. And so when you think about that, about creation, fall, redemption, balance, imbalance, restoration of balance on this side of eternity, there is nothing that is restored imbalance that lasts imbalance. Instead, we constantly are in this cycle. It makes us realize that we long for something that will bring ultimate satisfaction. So then when you read in the Psalms about the deer panting for the water, so my soul longs after you, hmm. You understand that homeostasis that you learn in week three of biology one is a picture of the gospel. Wow. I mean, it's just, wow. it's just yeah. amazing to see that. And by the way, the scripture actually affirms that right. in referencing that in, in the book of Psalms. And so you can see that with, with the tide systems. You can see that with um, even just life, birth, you know, birth, life, death, that we come to the moment of death and people ask, what comes afterwards. In fact, there's a famous story about that. The Venerable Bede, uh, writing in the Middle Ages in England, uh, missionary goes and he speaks to the pagan tribes and they're in this big hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the winter, the storm is going crazy outside and, and he's witnessing to them and, and talks about Christ. It's a hall that has a door here, a door here, and there's a fireplace apparently over here. And uh, so he's, he's talking about Christ and he's talking about the afterlife in particular. And this is to people who had questions about the afterlife. What, what happens after I die? And so he, he presents the gospel and the king looks to his high priest and he says, um, what do you think? What, should, we, should we do this? And uh, the priest says, once in the hall, I looked at the door and I saw a sparrow fly in this door and fly through the hall and fly out the other door. And while the sparrow was in the hall, it was warm and it was bright, but he went in one side and went out the other. And he said, this man just answered, this is our lives. We come in in one door, we go out another door. And outside of that is an entire universe that we cannot even imagine. Hmm. He said, this man has now explained to me what that is and how we get to that door. And the entire kingdom was saved. Wow. I mean, it's, 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 it's just incredible, yeah. but it was this general revelation thing of a sparrow flying through a room that gets connected then with the revelation of Christ articulated by this guy who was trained to be able to do that. And by the way, that guy was a pagan when he interpreted it by the light of Christ. I mean, that crazy, yeah. but then he proclaims it. He converts, the king converts, the kingdom converts. And that's one of the ways that Christianity came to England. And all of a sudden you end up with all the pagan civil wars that were going with the Viking tribes all of a sudden stopping and peace begins to reign in the kingdom. And they have so much peace and wealth that the other Vikings come over and start raiding. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. But to watch that general revelation articulated and converted into special revelation in a way that has unbelievable historic importance then. I mean, this is a book that we've read in, in the English tradition now for like 1,500 years, maybe longer than that. Uh, and the Venerable Bede, B-E-D-E, it's in the uh, ecclesiastical history of, um, of England, of the English people. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. God, uh, you know, and the life of them, that's why we talk about the mind of Christ being what the mind of Christ is, is because uh, it is a lens that allows us to see the world aright. Hmm. Because he is the light that lets us see the world aright. 
and he is the straight that allows us to see the crooked. I mean, you can go through all those different metaphors. Right. And you think about in the Gospels where Jesus says, love the Lord God with all your heart and soul and mind. Mm -hmm. Well, when you think about the mind aspect of that, we aren't reading our Bibles 24 hours a day. So mm -hmm. it would be foolish for us to think that we can only see God or see Christ or, or see God in our mind when we're reading our Bible. Mm -hmm. It's much more than that. We can see it in everything, and general revelation allows us to do to do that. And obviously, Bible reading is a really important thing. Right, and right. at North Don't Greenville, we discount. emphasize that. We have a read-through-the-Bible yeah. emphasis and all that. But if all you're doing is sitting in your room reading your Bible and that's all you do, you're going to have a really hard time sharing your faith with people that don't mm -hmm. understand that context. Mm -hmm. And and so it is one of the things that I, I think is really important for us is to have our mooring, have our grounding, have the spiritual disciplines that we follow and so forth, but then have that ability as as a neighbor, a service person who's working on something at the house, whatever, as, as they are having a relationship with you to be able then to be sensitive to the leading of God's spirit and whatever questions or just offhanded comments, you know, and eh, somebody's fixing your air conditioner. Yay. Uh, and you just say, you know, how, how are, you know, y'all staying busy conversation leads to a conversation. Next thing you know, you find out it's somebody that's going through a, uh, some sort of a family crisis or something like that. Mm. Um, that I, I, I heard somebody talking about evangelism one time. He said, the secret to evangelism is one more question. Mm. <laughs> he said, we always want to end the conversation. He said, if right. usually if there's one more question that you ask, that's maybe not even a question about the gospel, it's how are you really doing? Then all of a sudden something will open up. And, and that's a fascinating concept. I think they were one question away uh, from, from something like that. That could be a breakthrough. Right. Right. Thinking about your background in literature, the book, this book, God is author. Mm -hmm. um, one quote that I wanted to read um, when we think about narrative or just or just any type of literature that we read, um, like we talked about earlier, there, there is this goal to find God in that, right? Um, this quote, perhaps the gospel is not just like a story. Perhaps story, narrative in general, is mm -hmm. like the gospel. Can you kind of hash out what, what you mean by that statement? Yeah, so uh, literary scholars for a long time have found patterns in stories. And uh, one of the th one of the patterns that and the book goes into this in a lot of detail. One of the patterns that's frequently talked about it's called Freitag's Triangle, which is rising action, climax, falling action. That most stories you start the story, you tell the story. There's conflict, there's excitement, there's whatever. Then you reach a certain point, and you're like, "There's the money part of the story. This is why I've been listening to the story." Right. And then after that, there's a falling action where there's some sort of resolution or something like that. Um, the proposition that I make in the book is that that's actually invert, that, that it's not a triangle like that. It's actually a triangle like that, that we have creation, fall, redemption. Hmm. And so it's in the fall that we find the conflict that brings interest to a story. It's, it's things falling apart. It's whatever. But even in that, that conflict that leads to the conflict, to, to the climax in the story, what that is doing is preparing us to long for something happening. And so if you have somebody that's telling their life story and, you know, this happened with me and my parents, this happened with me and my wife, this happened with me and my children, it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. There comes a certain point where you're like, if something good doesn't happen, I don't know what I'm going to do. Right. And that's the gospel. So we have in us, built into us, I think, uh, and built into the way our brains process story and relationships and all I think we have built into that something that causes us to long for something to come and resolve. I, I think about Job even in the Old Testament. I know my he's in the middle of all this conflict and all the, everything's falling apart. And the only thing he can cling to is, I know my Redeemer lives and one day I will see him as face to face. Mm. And I, we have that in all of our stories. And so I can go to a pagan story. Gilgamesh epic. We can watch all the conflict that's going, all the conflicts going. It's even got a flood story in it. It's got all these other things that are in it. But what the story constantly wants to bring us back to is this longing of what does it mean to have a brother who will lay down his life for me? And that's in the story. Right. And that is something that as a Christian I read and I'm like, oh, let me tell you about a brother <laughs> that you, you know. And, and so you have those kinds of things that are there. And so when we um, give our testimony, when we uh, testify about the gospel, but in particular when we tell our own stories, 
Um, those are things that can connect to people. And the reality is now we live in a, a culture that is post-literate. People don't want to read explicative text, analytical text right. on a page. Um, they want to hear your story. Mm-hmm. And that's an unbelievable gift that our culture is giving us now, is people want to hear your story. Now, they may not claim it as the truth, but you've been able to get that story in there. And and I always remind people, it's not our story anyways that converts the sinner. It's the spirit working to lead to the gospel that does that. And and so, by the way, there's a lot of liberty in that as well, right. because it's not about us. It's right. about the spirit working. Uh, some sow, some water, some harvest, right? Uh, it's not about us. Our, our job is to be faithful sowers. Our job is to be faithful waterers. Our job is to be faithful harvesters as God sees fit. But the harvest is not on us. It's on the, it's on the Spirit and on our faithfulness to the work of the Spirit. And so you see the same thing, I, I think, in story and, and narrative. And so I see, you know, it's the old story about to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. To a man with a gospel, everything looks like a salvation story. And um, I, I think you absolutely have the ability to, to see that, especially in the great panorama of global literature that we have that spans millennia now. Uh, we can see glimmers of these things because ultimately all of us are humans. We share the same uh, DNA, at least structures. Right. And uh, I think that that is a part of the way that God has designed us so that uh, even in cultures that don't have the gospel, there are glimmers of the gospel that one day will be fulfilled in the way that people understand it as empowered ultimately by the Spirit in His timing, in His way. Thinking about all this, I mean, I mean, ultimately, as a student, um, as someone that's at, a, at an institution like North Greenville, um, the goal is really you go to all these classes. You come home where you go to your roommate, where you come home and see your parents. And you say, hey, I went to science class today. I went to English. I went to my Christian studies class. I went to my math class. Um, I learned all these things, but ultimately, I saw Christ in every yeah, class. Yeah. That's ultimately what happened. Is that really <coughs> the goal of all this? And then beyond that, applying that to our lives. One of the, I, bet, I think my favorite quote from the book was, thought without application is a waste of understanding. Yeah, yeah. Um, ultimately, all of this, is we see Christ in every aspect, in every class, in every aspect of our lives, in every aspect of our experience, in every aspect of everything we learn, and then the ultimate thing is the mission. Is that really what the what North Greenville and institutions like mm-hmm. North Greenville are designed to do? Yeah, and it takes intentionality and it takes protection. Sometimes people ask me, what's the most important job you have? And my answer is it's protecting the mission. Hmm. Uh, that guarding, we lose the mission one hire at a time. Uh, you lose your mission one financial decision at a time. And there's a lot of weight sometimes that comes in with that burden, but you also realize you are doing uh, what what God's work is. I, I was with new faculty two weeks ago, I think it was, and one of the new faculty members said, uh, as president, what, you, what do you want for us to know that we probably don't know? And I said that there are people all over the place that are praying for you and do not know your name. Because I know when I'm in restaurants, I'll have people come and say, I'm praying for campus. And they don't just mean, eh, I'm praying for I mean, I, I, I know of one gentleman who just passed away and he had a notebook and he worked. He couldn't go to church anymore. He couldn't leave the house anymore. He was a, a, what we used to call a shut-in. And I know for a fact that he was praying for faculty on that campus. Right. And I say, he doesn't know any of y'all's names, but when you're in class in front of those students, you have somebody that's praying that you will have an influence on those students. I mean, that that's pretty amazing. And uh, along with that, I'll, I'll just add this other little fun tidbit. Uh, I know that our uh, technician over there is a cybersecurity uh, major. And one of the things that I'll often hear is people will say, yeah, there's some majors that that doesn't apply to. I'm, I'm like, are you kidding me? Cybersecurity, are you kidding me? The whole reason it exists is because we need the gospel. Hmm. Hackers? There are no hackers in heaven. Right. That means it's on this <laughs> side. And so I, I encourage faculty members very frequently, please talk about the whys, okay? So uh, it's not just is this right or is this wrong? Is this uh, uh, generally agreed upon accepted principle? Is this not? The next question, there's your next question again. The next question is why? Is it right or is it wrong? Okay, why is it right? Why is it wrong? Hmm. And if this is the solution, why is this solution instead of something else being the solution? And so we move from the practical to the philosophical to the theological. 
And the next thing we know, we've got something amazing going. I mean, I'll give you another real quick example. Math. Math doesn't have anything to do with theology. Oh, yeah? 2 plus 2 equals 5. Okay. If, if I put that down, it's wrong. Right. Why is it wrong? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's not wrong because it's in the book in a certain way. It's wrong because it's wrong. I mean, it just doesn't work. And if you have a world that is filled with 2 plus 2 equals 5, very quickly the longing will be, will someone please come correct these stupid formulas and these equations, right? Uh, and, and so you, and again, it's pointing back, well, who will be, who, who, whom shall we send to correct the world's formulas and problems that are wrong? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. That's math. Oh, and by the way, let's talk about infinity. Oh, let's talk about, um, you know, zero. Let's, it, it's astounding how much this stuff is out there and how we begin. I mean, I often will say in the academic world, we open a door thinking we're going into a hall and we enter a room that is filled with more doors and more halls than we ever knew were that's there. Right. That's and that's because the wisdom of Christ is ultimately more than we can ever anticipate or expect. And that's all, that ought to be what the intellectual life does, which the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And the less smart you really are, which means you want to be following someone who is smarter. And uh, there you go. Right. That's really a picture of the gospel. I mean, the gospel is simple enough to where a child mm -hmm. can understand it. But um, you think about, I mean, I've heard pastors say you could sit someone in a room with John 3.16 and hundreds of books on it. Yeah. And he would never fully understand no. or the grasp and just grasp the depth of that verse. Mm -hmm. um, even in the gospel, we, we never stop searching. And so in academia, we never stop searching. And we might see Christ in an area, and then 20, 30, 30 years down the road, we see him again. So yeah. that's really what that does. Um, and so sometimes we can disconnect the mission from the truth. You know, and that, that's that's kind of a danger we mm -hmm. go into. We know the truth, and then we disconnect. And the, the mission is part of that um, and leads to that. So uh, as, a, as North Greenville is doing so many things on the mission field, I mean, I think about me, the, my fellow students over the years that went and on mission trips and mm -hmm. things like that, how important is the mission and what is North Greenville doing in um, terms of spreading the gospel, not just locally, but all over the world? Uh, so our mission is equipping transformational leaders for church and society, but we are also mission focused. And so that is how do we operationalize that mission? And so as we are connecting students with that sense that to be able to attend college in the United States is an incredible luxury and privilege. And if you have the ability to complete a baccalaureate degree in the United States, especially at a place like North Greenville, congratulations, you're now one of the most 1% most educated people on the face of the planet. Well, that, that, that's an incredible privilege, yes. right? But as Christians, we are never given privilege for our purposes. We are given privilege for kingdom opportunities. And so helping students to understand that they can do mission in so many different ways. Right. And so it may be student teaching at a mission school in Central America, and that may be the only time you go do something like that, but Wow, what an, what an incredible way to be able to, to play that out, um, to do a business internship um, in the business office of a 501c3 in inner city Atlanta or in rural South Dakota. I mean, th those, are, those are all things that ultimately contribute to what God's mission is, what, what God's work is in the nations. And um, we love to be a place that really does try to help students to think through that. Uh, and increasingly, especially in the West, it's going to be harder and harder for people to be full-time vocational uh, right. professional ministers. They're going to have to have a platform. And, and my parents did that when I was coming through. They, they said, look, your, your job may not necessarily be your calling. Your job may be how you pay the bills while you do your calling. Mm -hmm. And that, that all the way back in 1979 or 80, that was a, that was a really potent thing that they taught me. And I see this with students right. all the time, just because you're being trained for a job does not mean that is the totality of what God's plan is for you. Just because God's calling you to do ministry may not mean that he's calling you to do it in a context where that is all you do. You may have to do these other things. And um, I, I think increasingly the church, especially in the West is, 
uh, waking up to the realization that the rest of the world has had a long time, uh, which is people who are in ministry may have to do a lot of different things. But you know what? Our calling is is to do what what God is calling us to do. Um, and that there is no like hierarchy of you know full time, part time, bivocational, right. whatever. Right. Like, right. Give me a break. Um, yeah. You know, I, my grandfather I think pastored at one time three or four churches all at the same time. You know, <laughs> and um, you know we we've got to be really careful about uh, importing a hoity-toity attitude, as one of my friends used to call it, uh, into church work and understand that you know. God, God's got a lot of things that need to be done, and That's He's right. calling us and preparing us, equipping us for all kinds of different things that are a part of His plan. Right. Ministry is everywhere. I remember as a pastor's kid growing up, I would, people would ask me, are you going to go to ministry? I'm like, well, maybe. Oh, you're going to be a pastor. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. There are many vocations that are a calling and a ministry, and really, if you're a Christian, whatever you're doing should be, in fact, a calling, and North Greenville is preparing people to do that. I, I really enjoy talking about how it's the importance of doing that over every discipline. How North Greenville is doing that as someone who's a communications major or interdis major with communications and marketing, I can say that in both those disciplines, I saw that. So um, thank you for all you're doing at North Greenville and thank you for coming on the show. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we close? I'll just say one thing. You were mentioning those two disciplines. Those are disciplines too where we have particular faculty members who get it. Mm -hmm. And so when I hear about people like you talk about your stories, um, you know, that that's something that really does my heart a lot of good uh, because it really is uh, where the wheel hits the road, uh, so to speak. It's one thing for me to talk about things that can end up sounding like marketing strategies. <laughs> um, but to hear especially alums and current students talk about uh, a faculty member who's meant a lot to them and that really was living out those kinds of conversations. Um, that's the stuff that that to me is just hugely encouraging. And then the last thing I'll say uh, a lot of the people that will be watching this are people that are based in churches and all. We can't do what we do without churches. Right. And uh, we hope that churches understand they can't do what they do without us, and that it really is God calling us together as ministry partners, um, hooking our arms together and, and walking forward to do those things. Uh, we can't do it without that, and um, that's also a part of the sense of uh, duty and mission and, and purpose that we have as well. So thanks for the invite. Yes, happy, sir. To, happy to, I'm always glad to talk. Right. Yes, sir. We, we are glad that you were happy to come and talk. This was great. So um, thanks. thank you for coming on. And I'm Wilson Paris, and that's a good word. <laughs>